From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that, ma that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Information Systems Agency has 17,000 users on its Defense Enterprise Office Solution platform now. The DO's program director at DISA, Carolyn Bean, says her agency has a, quote, pretty lengthy document with lessons learned from its transition to share with other DOD organizations. NextGov reports DISA is still working on providing the services outside the continental United States. Army leadership is, quote, concerned about how much money is in the services working capital fund. Lieutenant General Dwayne Gamble says the service will need between $600 and $900 million later in the year. Federal News Network reports Gamble told a congressional committee health and safety leave because of the pandemic is one reason the Army has spent down its fund. The Air Force's digital uh, uh, training platform is getting an upgrade. Updates to the branch's digital university include career paths and customizable skill tracks. FedScoop reports the Army's piloting a version of the Air Force's digital university. The Navy has a new framework for creating unmanned systems for its fleet. The document lists five overarching goals, but that document doesn't specify targets for the number of vessels or the timeline. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you take away from this unmanned campaign plan that the Navy has released? Well, thanks for having me on, Francis. It's great to see you again. Uh, the campaign plan, I think, fell a little short. Uh, a lot of people were criticizing it because it didn't really give a, a sense of where the Navy was going. It sort of described where the Navy is right now. It described the vehicles they're pursuing today, uh, some of the missions they're going to be used for, but not entirely what, what the mission set is. Uh, and then also uh, described uh, the changes they want to make to the way that they buy new systems, uh, which I thought was actually the best part of the report, was the, the changes to how the acquisition and re research and development process might go. What are the changes that the Navy's talking about in that area? Because the Defense News report about this, uh, this hearing on the Hill about this um, referenced the remote multi-mission vehicle, which did not go very well. Right. The RMMV, as we call it, is uh, was not a success story. Uh, it was uh, an attempt to try to create a semi-submersible unmanned vehicle that would tow around a mine clearing sled. Uh, it just created it's just an engineering nightmare you know, to try to make something that'll do uh, to drag a very heavy object like that using a diesel powered semi-submersible. So the Navy's moved on to using an unmanned surface vessel, which is essentially just a boat that they've trained uh, turned into an unmanned system. Uh, that can then tow that same sled around, which is a much simpler solution, easier from an engineering perspective. So what the Navy is doing a lot is a lot more of this prototyping and then developing an idea and trying to stick with the most uh, mature technologies possible and then you know, get it into the fleet slowly. Uh, the RMMV idea was to try to introduce something very new and disruptive rapidly uh, and just failed uh, to come through. What do we know from this new document and from other efforts that the Navy's undertaken about how they plan to change that acquisition track? Because, uh, as you mentioned, there is a little bit of detail here about that. Yeah. Um, so Congress has been beating the Navy up for several years now about trying to introduce new technologies too quickly. And so they want the Navy to take more time to mature the technologies before they get introduced into a new system and then take some time to uh, use that system to develop the operational concepts before they introduce it to the fleet. So the Navy's going to take that approach. 
uh, and try to mature to underlying technologies and then incorporate them into vehicles. Um, they be, to get the speed, though, that they want, they're going to try to do a little bit in parallel. So they're going to buy some vehicles that can act as proxies that they can use for testing out new CONOPS, while at the same time uh, developing technologies for the eventual vehicles they're going to use in real operational applications. So a little bit of a parallel track to gain some speed, um, but they're going to try to do what the Congress wants them to do, which is to mature technologies before they get put into a final production uh, vehicle they're going to give to military people to try and use. How is that different from the concurrence that got the F-35 into trouble, though? Right. right. And so the idea would be that you're just using the proxy vehicles to essentially develop uh, operational concepts and see what the utility of the platform is, uh, not to try to design the vehicle. So the design and the development of the vehicle will be proceeding on a completely different uh, track. And that'll happen uh, in series, you know, just like we've talked about with developer technologies, figure out how they get integrated into a platform and then field that platform. So that kind of happens on one track and the Navy's going to take these proxies and use them for experimentation to figure out, well, what is it that the, the you know, the utility of this, this platform going to be down the road? So there's a risk of concurrency, certainly. Um, but I think they're trying to come up with a way to get the speed they need while at the same time trying to achieve the the, the maturity and the engineering uh, reliability they need. But it sounds like the proxies are prototypes, they're test vehicles and not yeah. anything that's ever right. intended to go into, right. to, for, to, to be a mature piece of equipment that somebody right. will use at the tip of the spear, is that right? Right, 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 that's, that's, that's what they're arguing, yes. All right, what, what will you watch as this develops, Brian, both in the hardware itself and in the people that the Navy will need to operate right. this? I, people say unmanned, it's not really, un, nothing's really unmanned, somebody's gotta manage it somewhere. Yeah, absolutely, and, I, and so one thing that we're finding is that the Navy's gonna have to really consider which platform should be manned uh, because you need a person on board to do maintenance or repairs because the system's gonna be out there long enough. Like the large unmanned surface vessel the Navy's been talking about is probably gonna end up being a manned vessel most of the time, just because if it's out for months at a time, it's gonna require some sort of maintenance and oversight that people are going to have to provide. It's just not practical to have people keep flying out to deal with a broken large unmanned surface vessel. Um, so that's essentially a crewing mod. Um, the medium unmanned surface vessel though is supposed to operate completely on its own. Um, so there's going to be manning associated with it to, to go out and take care of it and maybe repair it in the, in the field. Um, so those people will be more the mechanical repair type, whereas the large unmanned surface vehicle will be more like the operator maintainer type like we have in the Navy today. We have about a minute left, Brian. What does the Navy need to do to soothe the members of Congress who weren't impressed by this plan? Congresswoman Luria, I was really disappointed with the lack of substance. What do they need to do to put meat on the bones, Brian? Well, I think, you know, like I said, the part that, that seemed to have a lot of interesting ideas in was in the R&D side, but on the part about the plan and the vision and the campaign plan to get there, that was really lacking. So the Navy needs to identify the missions that they want these unmanned systems to support, um, what that means for their design and requirements, and then how they're going to do a roadmap, essentially, to build out the systems that provide those mission uh, needs. And so none of that was in the report. It was really lacking on that whole discussion about mission to, to task to requirements. Brian Clark, thanks very much. As always, great to see you. Great to see you. Uh, thanks, Francis. Up next, the future of Army Futures Command. Straight ahead on Government Matters, avoiding acquisition mistakes of the past. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Army has a field manual in the works for its multi-domain operations warfighting concept. That new doctrine should be out in summer of next year. It'll be top of mind for Army Futures Command. Brad Bowman is Senior Director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He's writing about the uh, Army Futures Command for Defense News. Brad, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What are the big challenges that Army Futures Command is up against? Are they legacy challenges or are they unique to this new command? Yes and yes. Uh, you know, the challenges the Army Futures Command confronts uh, really are a microcosm, I would say, of what the entire Department of Defense confronts. You know, you, the United States is in an intense military competition with China and Russia. Uh, this is not theoretical or academic. It's a real world competition that's going to uh, determine whether the United States has the means to deter and defeat authoritarian aggression. Uh, you know, they've been sprinting to fill, field world class capabilities. For too long, the United States has delayed modernizing our own forces. As a result, U.S. military supremacy has eroded. You know, Admiral Davison, the top uh, U.S. military officer in the Pacific, testified to the Senate Armed Service Committee recently saying that he feared an attack from Beijing in the next six years. And the reason that might be the case is because they believe they might be able to accomplish their political objectives with military force. And so if we want to deter and if necessary defeat that, we have to field those modern capabilities ourselves. So the good news to fielding those capabilities uh, in the piece that you wrote is this. AFC appears to have learned the right lessons, says major acquisition programs that previously took up to 14 years to field are now on track to take only four years. Four years is still a long time in the middle of great power competition, but certainly better than 14, right? That's right. You know, there, you know, we don't want to count chickens before they hatch, but there are some early signs that the Army Futures Command has learned the tough lessons associated with failures like future combat systems, like the Comanche, like the Crusader systems that were all acquisition failures. You know, the Army has designed and prototyped a short-range air defense capability within 18 months. They're going to have the first maneuver battalion fielded within the year. Uh, one of the uh, cross-functional teams wrote a requirement for a mounted assured position uh, navigation and timing system, prototyped it, and then equipped initial units with it in 18 months. And the long range precision fires cross-functional team is on track to potentially deliver a capability if authorizations and appropriations are provided of uh, the, the precision strike rule by 2023. So these are good things, but what, what all of these uh, cross-functional teams have in front of them still is this valley of death, trying to get from a vital research and development program to fill the capability as retired General Lieutenant uh, General Ed Cardone said during our event, our research and development programs don't deter aggression, build and combat capabilities do. So this is really a moment of truth for Army Futures Command. Um, General Cardone used a, a very nice euphemism for the old uh, Army phrase, uh, warheads on foreheads, uh, getting the, the stuff into the field. That is something that the other forces are working on too. They're thinking about these same concepts. What can the Navy and the Air Force take away from Army Futures Command and apply to their acquisition processes, Brad? You know, it's a great question. I asked uh, during our event that, that is on FTD's website, I asked these three cross-functional team directors kind of what the secret sauce was for this initial success. And, uh, you know, they highlighted a number of things, but having these, these flexible authorities, uh, you know, the command has done a soldier-focused, prototype-driven acquisition approach where they've really tried to incorporate feedback from the field and leverage middle-tier acquisition processes and these so-called non-traditional other tracks and transaction uh, authorities. And so these things, as one of the, the directors said, have been key to allowing Army Futures Command to move quickly. 
So clear guidance from the command, authorities move quickly in a real sense of urgency that there is no time to waste and the stakes are high. You write in this piece, if AFC continues these practices, it may be able to avoid past failures and convert promising R&D programs into fielded capabilities. Is there a point at which AFC or the Army more broadly can declare victory and say we finally got it? Or is this something that they need to be continually diligent on years and years into the future, Brad? This might sound depressing, but there is no finish line. This competition will continue as long as we have great power, authoritarian adversaries that want to accomplish political objectives through aggression. So once this full first batch of uh, uh, weapons capabilities are delivered to the field, uh, Lord willing, uh, you know, as soon as possible, they got to start thinking about what comes next. This is a competition that does not end as long as we want to uh, protect our freedom and security. What would you watch moving forward? Will it just be to see whether AFC stays on this same track and continues to do business in the same way? Or are there other issues here that you'll pay attention to, Brad? The number one thing I'm gonna watch in the next few months, frankly, is what kind of budget uh, the administration proposes and Congress provides to all of you, including the Army. You know, uh, I fear that they're gonna do a flat or reduced defense budget. That's going to force tough decisions within DOD, across the services, and within Army Futures Command. And if we can get this right, if we can provide DOD and the Army sufficient budgets in the next three to five years, we can fill the capabilities that our forces will be using for the next 20 to 30 years. If we get this wrong, I fear Admiral Davidson might be right about potential aggression in the Taiwan Strait and other places, South China Sea, Baltics, and even on the Korean Peninsula. we got to get this right. Very quickly, less than 30 seconds left. Can the Army do it with a smaller budget with just fewer capability, or is that not good enough? I encourage your listeners, look at what happened in the 2017 readiness crisis. We failed to provide the, 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 the Army and the services more broadly sufficient funding to simultaneously conduct current operations, maintain readiness, and modernize the force. We make that mistake again, we're going to put ourselves right back in a readiness crisis and the stakes might be higher this time. Brad, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. You can find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, new data use at the Defense Logistics Agency. Straight ahead on Government Matters, building the people skills the department needs to harness the power of data. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Logistics Agency has a new data strategy in progress. DLA's Chief Data Officer, Teresa Smith, tells Federal News Network she wants to give people the right data to help answer the right questions. The Pentagon's broader data strategy is only about six months old. Rhea Patel is Senior Program Manager for Government at Decode. Rhea, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What should these organizations inside the Defense Department think about? What should they consider as they plan data strategies? Thank you for having me. That's a great question. Um, I think something that we've learned from just seeing the, the DOD implement their own data strategy is the need to keep it a simple sort of strategy, right? So make it very transparent, make it very clear. And I think one thing we've learned um, just in our own time at Decode, helping these organizations better understand data is the need to also not just help help the workforce understand what is data and, and sort of 
generic data literacy, but also how do you tell a story with data, which I know is also very much in line with what defense logistics agency is thinking about as they implement their own data strategy. What's fascinating to me is when the, the DOD's data strategy came out, David Spurk said the most important thing he was thinking about was people. That's pretty consistent with what people are talking about in every other area of technology and pretty much every area of everything is people. What are the right people and what are the right skills those people have to be able to tell stories as you described it a moment ago? Absolutely, so um, definitely everyone, right? I think the, the beautiful thing about data and the reason it's so powerful is that it can truly affect the way that every, every, every person in the workforce does business within the Department of Defense and within Defense Logistics Agency. And so data literacy is important, not just for the operators and the users, but also for enabling functions like acquisitions and um, folks in HR as well as leadership. So everyone needs to better understand data and have a conception of data literacy. But I think this thing that we have seen at Decode and also what we, we teach is all about understanding how to also manage a product um, and manage data because program management, which the Department of Defense is very good at, is frankly a little different from managing data and managing a product that involves data. So having a piece of data, data literacy and data education that also focuses on how do you enable um, data to, to affect change in the department and how do you product manage and understand how to be more agile um, and innovative through leveraging data is, a, is just as important as understanding the underlying um, functions and architecture of, of data. When you deal with people inside the Defense Department, not necessarily just DLA, but broadly across the department, what's the biggest shortcoming when these people come to you about understanding that concept of managing data as a product, Rhea? That's a great question. So one thing we see um, a lot of difficulty with, and I think this is just by nature of, of data, honestly, is that everyone everyone can grasp and understand data and everyone works with data. It's very difficult to understand its day-to-day -day applications um, and how to, how to realistically think about the for the first next steps, right? So we always hear like, don't boil the ocean with new technology. And that is something that, uh, personally love seeing the, the DOD strategy um, kind of focus on incremental steps to help the workforce understand how they can realistically apply data to their everyday jobs. So use case definition, as well as just a, a, a conception of how to, how to start small, um, but think big when you're thinking about implementing a data strategy. For other organizations inside DOD that are working on data strategies, would it make sense to just adapt what the Pentagon has chosen broadly, or does is each organization's operation sufficiently different that it should be tailored to what they do? That's a great question, and I'm just trying to think because <laughs> I... Um, I think something that's super interesting, right, is the the conception and the strategy that DoD has has set forth is pretty is pretty uh, overarching and it keeps it very general and is definitely when I read it, it comes across as something that should be tailored and customized depending on the organization, depending on the office. So I think it's a great framework to start and then core to having a, a really strong data governance structure and data architecture is understanding how it 
fits into your own network architecture and your own organization's systems and mission sets. So I would say it's a it's a piece of using it as a great starting point and kickstarting your, uh, an organization's sturdy into and better leveraging data as a strategic asset, but there should be some level of tailoring and customization to fit their specific mission needs. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanna go back to that term that you used earlier, data literacy. When someone is data literate, what is she able to do that she wasn't able to do before data literacy? Great question. And again, something that I probably I probably talked to government about for four hours of an eight hour workday. Um, it's all about understanding the data you have, understanding how you can leverage that data to enable um, better decisions at your job, to make your job quicker, easier, uh, more accurate, depending on what you are doing. And it's also an understanding of how to weave that narrative of data um, into the, the larger mission and picture. We have about 30 seconds left. What would you watch as these organizations, not just DLA, but others roll out their data strategies, Rhea? Absolutely. Um, I think one thing that we are looking forward to seeing, and I, I think we have already seen, is a partnership with private sector and industry on um, leveraging data and, and implementing data um, from the ground up. So private sector in particular, the commercial technology sector has already done some amazing things when it comes to helping organizations understand how to set a, set a strong basis for enabling data-driven decision-making. And so I think we're seeing a lot of leveraging commercial technology to help organizations in particular, the Department of Defense, get their uh, data structured and clean. And I think we are also seeing a heavy investment in training um, and enable the workforce to better understand how data can make their lives easier as well as how to manage data in the context of you know huge enterprise-wide programs. Rhea Patel thanks very much for joining me appreciate it. Thank you for having me Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.